we're starting, or we're actually three weeks into a series on work. And as soon as I say that word, maybe that brings up sort of positive feelings. Some of you are already flinching, twitching, crying. Um, wanted to remind you that when we talk about work, what we're talking about is whatever it is that we do for most days of our life. Whether, whether it, we, it's formally a job, whether it's full-time, whether it's part-time, whether we get paid for it or not, whether we're at home with children or maybe at home taking care of elderly parents, maybe we're at home on disability, maybe we're out of work, maybe we're trying to find better work, wherever you are, work is this inescapable reality of all of our lives. And I did some quick math for you a few weeks ago and said that if we count our school years, which of course are work that we work for over 100,000 hours in our lifetime more than we do anything else. And so it is an inescapable reality. And it's something that we're actually meant to figure out and say, okay, how does, what are we supposed to do in this life's work? How do I engage with it? And the premise that we sort of put before you a few weeks ago is that God has given us work as a gift. It's not fundamentally a curse. It's actually something in which we were meant to engage and find not just survival, but thriving, joy in our workplace. And that's the premise I put before you. And I did not promise that simply because I think I know how to do that for you. I cannot bring joy in your workplace for you. But I do believe that as we know God more and understand what work is really meant to be and why we were given it as a good thing to do at the beginning of time, that, that we can actually begin to discover joy in it. I was thinking, or they, they say about our generation or people around us or who are entering the workforce at this stage in life, that uh, unlike the generations past, we might have upwards of seven to ten careers in our life. And within those careers, perhaps jobs changes. And I, if I think about the various sort of jobs that I've been in, and maybe you can think about the various jobs you've been in, or perhaps changes that have happened in your workplace, maybe promotions or new opportunities. If you think about it, whenever we enter into those spaces, there's always a sense of expectation or excitement associated with it, right? Like, whatever's, whatever's new coming up, and your, your life is about to change, and your work is about to change, there's always some sense of excitement with it, because there's an expectation that, okay, something good is about to happen. Maybe we enter a job, and we're going for the interview, and we're really happy we got it, and just because sometimes just getting the job, you know, makes us feel excited. Or maybe if it's our first job, or if it's our first job in a long time, the paycheck is exciting. Someone's, I've actually convinced somebody to pay me for something. And I just have to hold on long enough before they figure out that I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, that is, can bring excitement. Maybe the, the promise of a new work environment or, or a new job or a new team. Perhaps you've sought out that job or sought out that company because you, you've heard good things about the culture or you know people who work there. Or perhaps as you've seen sort of what the job posting is, the work is very exciting to you. Or maybe the benefits are great. Maybe the amount of pay or, um, or the benefits themselves or bonus structure or vacation or just that it allows you to have, okay, this is going to have a good balance of sort of work time and non-work time. And so we're, we're often excited as we go into new realities, either changes in our work or new jobs or new places. And invariably that excitement, you know, fades over time. Sometimes, you know, if, if it's the paycheck we're excited about after a while, eventually that just becomes the new normal and our lifestyle catches up to our income, and now we're just sort of like, well, yeah, I need that. So the, the, uh, the, the, so the joy of the paycheck maybe diminishes a little bit. But more often than not, maybe things aren't exactly as we thought they were going to be. Maybe the person who was doing the interview with us or the person who was going to be our boss, we thought, oh, we're really going to get along, but then as you begin to work, and there's no way to know this until you actually get into the work itself. 
And maybe if your work is, uh, you're staying home with children, right? Like you have an expectation of how it's going to be. Invariably, it's different than how you think it's going to be. And so maybe you find, wow, this is way more difficult than I thought. Well, I signed up for this job or this role, and it's kind of over my head. Or maybe the expectations on me are just a lot higher than I thought, and they're a lot higher than I can actually, I can't do this. You know, what is being expected of me, either explicitly or implicitly? Sometimes changes, I mean, we're constantly, our, because our economy is constantly changing, our work environments are constantly changing, and so maybe the role got changed underneath your feet. Or maybe some people got let go, and so now more work is falling on you. Or maybe you were the, uh, someone who got let go. And so changes have made the job less than what it was supposed to be, or more difficult than what you thought it was going to be. Or maybe just managing expectations, and we find difficulty in our work, and we can begin to go, what? Like, and, and you're not alone, right? I don't think I'm just talking to one person here. How many of you have experiences in some shape or form? Or we know people who are. Maybe you're that person saying, no, no, I am in a sweet spot right now. Like, this is the best I can craft it to be. The wind is at my back. When I'm, when I, I, you know, I get paid well. I got a good balance. I'm, I'm expected to do what I think I do well. And so everything's great. But you know people who that's not their reality. Or perhaps you've been in a place before, or perhaps we'll be in a place a year from now where those things are starting to kind of fall apart a little bit. And we can often wonder, well, what's wrong with my work? What's wrong with the world around me? What's wrong with me? Why am I struggling in this? Or why is work the way it is? It's a question that many of us have. Why aren't things the way they're supposed to be? I expected it to be a certain way, but it's not. As we turn to the scriptures, one of the most comforting things for me and I've said this to you before, is that this is not a rule book for life or some kind of manual that we can just sort of look up in the index, problem A, solution A. But it's a story of God and us. It's a story of the world. It's actually our story. And that as we begin to understand it more, we understand some of the responses to the questions that all of us have is, what is wrong with my boss? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with my work environment? The scriptures actually provide for us this answer, this understanding. You may have been here over the last few weeks, and the scriptures open up to us in Genesis 1 and 2. It actually tells us, hey, work is not a four-letter word. Work's not a bad thing. Work was given to us as a blessing. And just as God started the world by creating out of nothing, making something new, and cultivating, making things grow... That's what our work is. We try to define, well, what is work according to Scripture? It's not just doing something, activity. It's creating and cultivating. No matter what kind of work you're in, that actually every one of us is meant to try to make new things in the environment we're in or make other things grow. And I try to unpack for you how it doesn't matter whether you consider yourself an entrepreneur or it doesn't matter whether you own your own business, whether tons of people report to you or nobody reports to you, that whether you get paid for it or not, that this isn't just about a specific kind of work, but making new and making grow is the calling that every one of us has in work. The second week we talked about work being fundamentally not about ourselves, but actually that God has sent us out into the various places and spaces where we are to serve other people. And we know this because when God sent himself into our space in the form of Jesus, the Son, God, man, he said, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life up. And so we who are followers of that Jesus understand that, and he said that to his disciples, this is how it should be with you as well. Now you may have been sitting here or listening to that or talking to your home groups as you're going through this going like, 
That sounds great, but that's not my work. Or why is that so difficult? Oh, I forgot to mention you. We're going to do some Q&A near the end of the service today. So in your bulletins, there's a number. It's Malcolm's phone number. Don't write it on the walls, other places. Just if you have a question, it comes up during the service. If I see you texting, I'm just assuming you're, you're sending me a question. So I'm assuming the number of people texting during the service should be that number of questions at the end. But if you have questions, you can text them or you can wait till the Q&A time or have a good time to dialogue this. Because I realize as we're going through this, and maybe as you've been talking in your home groups and stuff, that there are questions coming up. If you don't have a home group, you say, I'd like to have one of those. Sounds good. It's a place where we kind of journey together in a bit of a smaller group to understand and unpack these things. You can ask Pastor Tony or myself after you go online and sign up for that. We'll have some time for that. But you may have been sitting there. You may have been talking. Certainly in our home group, we're talking. It's like, okay, that sounds great. Creating, cultivating, serving. Why is that so hard to do? Why is my workplace really not geared to that? No, nobody at my work is paying me to be creative. No, nobody at my work is interested in my cultivation. No one's cultivating me. It would be great to be able to serve each other, but why does it feel like I'm the only one serving? Or if I am the only one serving, man, that's a vulnerable place to be if everyone else is taking and I'm the one trying to get. How come my bosses, the people who leave my company, don't seem to have this paradigm of what work is? And the scriptures actually give us an answer, and it's called sin. Now, sin is a word that is kind of offensive or archaic to the modern mind, or the postmodern mind. Sin, if you, if you grow up in the church, you haven't grown up in the church, you've been connected to anybody of anything, you've probably heard the word, it probably has a negative association with it, and you probably think, well, sin is doing bad things, breaking God's law. That's what sin is. And you might think, well, that's kind of an old way of looking at it. We don't really think about ourselves that way. The, the world that we live in now has basically eliminated that concept of sin. And we say, well, we don't like to say things are wrong or things are right. And that word of sin leads to judgment. It's a bad thing. But here's the thing. The word sin is actually a very positive uh, word because it's a diagnosis. And diagnosis, though difficult to engage in, it means there's something wrong, are actually positive because they promise hope. If there's a diagnosis, well, maybe we're starting to move towards the cure for the pain. And the truth is, regardless of whatever faith background you have, whether you grew up in the church or not, whether you're not sure about the Bible, or whether you're fully committed to it, every one of us has that same question. What's wrong with the world? And in this context of our study, what's wrong with my workplace? What's wrong with, you know, my, it may, and maybe you feel that not just in your work, but in your discipline or the kind of work that you're in. If you're in the education system, you think, what's wrong with the education system? Maybe you have a list of a litany of things that you think are wrong with it. But why is there so much brokenness? Why can't people just see what's wrong? And the modern um, view of what's wrong with the world is overly simplistic. We think we're going to solve it with education and progress. And we are the most educated world that we have ever had. We have made more progress. And things have gotten better in some of our places because of our advancements. And other things have gotten worse. We're no more happy in our workplace. We have a whole kind of criminal designation for stuff, bad things done by people who are well-educated at work. called white-collar crime. We have very, very educated people who nearly sank the U.S. economy in 2008. They knew exactly what they were doing. It no matter. They went to some of the most prestigious schools in the world, worked at some of the best banks in the world, and nearly sank the entire economy by bundling together subprime mortgages and selling them as junky investments. And those shockwaves are felt around the world. These are very educated people. Is that what's wrong with our workplace? We just need a little more education and progress. It's an oversimplified solution. The scriptures say, no, actually, sin is the problem. And if there's a diagnosis, there's a cure. And so every one of us want to know, and not just what's going on out there, what's wrong with the world in here? 
Why can't I seem to do the things I know I need to do in my workplace? I should be serving others. Why am I always looking out for myself? I should be creating and cultivating, but why do I shrink back from risk? Why am I not interested in making other things and other people grow? Why am I struggling so much with this? The scriptures actually tell us it's sin, because if there's a diagnosis, there's a cure. And if the opening two chapters of the book of the Bible tell us that we were meant to create and cultivate and serve, and God has given us this beautiful world, Genesis 3, the third chapter, actually tells us what went wrong. And it tells us that sin came into the world, and the heart of sin is beyond just doing bad things and breaking God's law, but ultimately this attitude, which every one of us has a bent towards from the time we were born, is that God is meant to be at the center of all things. God is the one, because he is God, who gives the universe, in a sense, its orbit, its gravitational pull, gives us our sense of meaning and purpose and love and beauty, and everything in the created world tells us that God is beautiful and lovely and put us in the middle of it to enjoy it. But ultimately, human beings, and we can blame Adam and Eve if we want, but at the end of the day, if we all wanted a fresh start today, we'd last about a half an hour before we sinned and did the same thing. We'd push God out of the center and say, God, thanks but no thanks, I will live my life my way. And as we do that, everything becomes to, to float out of orbit because the center is now pushed to the margins and we have placed ourselves at the center. And the scriptures tell us this is the problem with the world, is that we have determined to do things our own way and rejected God and his way of doing things. We have rejected his love, we have rejected his plan, and ultimately we don't trust him. The heart of sin, someone ever asked you if you ever wanted to know, is not trusting God. Everything else in life comes from that. And the scriptures tell us that when Adam and Eve, in a sense, our first parents, our forebears, pushed God out of the center, everything began to revolve out of orbit. And it had consequences far-reaching because everything was held together by God. And one of the huge consequences that work, which was meant to be a blessing, would now be cursed. And we can read specifically about what that curse actually was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 to 19. And here's what uh, God said to Adam who was a farmer, and so his curse was particularly had to do with farming, but we're going to extrapolate that and understand that had to do with all life's work. He said to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you. His sin wasn't that he listened to his wife. Okay, guys, so don't, don't use that later. <laughs> his sin was that he listened to his wife and ate from the tree, which I commanded you not to eat from. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Just two key phrases that I want you to, to think about here. Painful toil, which the word painful actually, in all the translation and other ways it's used in other parts of the scripture, actually means emotional pain. It doesn't, it doesn't actually mean physical pain. It means a heartache. It means physical, emotional, or emotional kind of pain from work. And so God says, hey, once you push me out of the center and you don't trust me anymore, work will be marked by a weight, a heaviness of heart, a difficulty in your soul as you work the ground. There's pain that's an emotional kind. It's an inner ache. And secondly, it says, by the sweat of your brow. And uh, one of the professors, a professor from Malcolm and I, the, the school we attend, um, I'm on the slower track than he is, uh, noted that this is kind of a Hebrew idiom, the, by the sweat of your brow. It doesn't just mean hard work. It means work that is driven by or clouded over by fear, anxiety, and frustration. 
So if you take the results of what happens when we push God out of the center, what was supposed to be beautiful and enjoyable and creative is now done with heartache and has fear and anxiety and frustration associated with it. And like I said to you, every one of us can say we relate to that in some shape or form. What was meant to be beautiful and enjoyable, to give us a sense of purpose and motivation, Creating, cultivating, serving other people is now marked by frustration, fear, anxiety, and a heartache. This is the problem with it. And what happens to people who have to do something for more than they do any other thing in their lives, over 100,000 hours in their lifetime? And when they do it, it is marked by regular fear, anxiety, and pain. Those people will be desperate for a cure. We will be looking for someone to ease the pain. And whereas that was meant to be God, when we have pushed God to the margins and said, I don't think you can help me. I don't think your ways are good. I don't think the way you see the world is actually the way it is. We are left without a savior for the pain and the frustration, anxiety, and ache. And so we are perpetually people looking for that Savior in our workplace. We are looking for something to rescue us. And the Apostle Paul, when he wrote a, church, a letter to the church in Rome, one of the early churches, it's called the Letter of Romans, and he described what, this actually, what actually happened. And he's describing not just what happened to Adam and Eve, but actually the whole of the human race. And he says this in Romans 1, verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Paul's telling us what happened and what the heart of sin is, and he's describing the universal human condition, and let's talk about it specifically in relation to our work. He said, what we did when we pushed God out of the center but found anxiety, fear, frustration, and heartache in our jobs, we were desperate for a Savior, and so what we decided to do was worship created things instead of the creator. Because we were looking for something to worship. Some, and worship meaning that thing that was going to save us, cure us, Help us, sustain us, give us a sense of purpose, and give us a cure for the pain. It doesn't matter whether you consider yourself a person of faith or not. Every one of us is looking for a savior like that. And every heart, as a result, worships. It worships whatever it finds. We turn to our jobs and say, save me. Stabilize me. Give me security. Give me a sense of purpose. Tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm beautiful. Tell me I'm worthwhile. Now, you might not use that language as it relates to your job, but John Calvin put it this way and said, our hearts have become idle factories because we are constantly looking for something to save us. And I believe that this affects every area of our lives, but it certainly affects the area of our lives where we spend the most amount of time in our lives engaging, and that is our workplace. And in some shape or form, you or I have done, you and I together have done what Paul says we have. Instead of worship God the creator, we have taken a created thing like work and we have turned to it and said, you are going to save me. You are going to rescue me from the fear, anxiety, and the pain. And I think I want to focus on, I think there's many ways that this looks like, but there's two in particular I want to look at today in terms of idols in our workplace. We can tend to worship our work as the savior, as the rescue from our work for this, for the money it pays us, 
and the identity it gives us. The money it pays us and the identity it gives us because it promises security and self-worth. And this is why it's a false god. What is an idol these days? It's not a bad thing. An idol's not an evil thing. In the ancient times and in still many cultures, idols are made of wood and stone. Wood and stone are not evil things, but they're created things. Today we look at, you know, that kind of idol worship sort of offends our modern sensibilities and we laugh at people who worship the sun or worship animals or worship creation and yet we turn to our jobs in various ways and say, you're the thing that gives me security. You're the thing that gives me significance. You're the thing that gives me self-worth. That's what it means to be a false god. It's a substitute god. We don't use that language in our everyday life, but it is a reality that ultimately we are looking for things that are not God to give us what only God can give. A sense of Security and self-worth. And I want to unpack that in these two ways. For money, if I, if, as I throw this out to you and talk about money, some of you may say, oh, money's, money's not a God for me. I mean, I know people who are it is. Really, I wish they were here, but it's not for me. Or you might say, huh, I'd love to make enough money that it would actually be a God for me. <laughs> it has nothing to do with how much you make or whether you're a spender or a saver. On the surface, nobody can look at another person, and on the surface, you cannot look at your own life and determine whether you worship money. You can't tell. Just because someone spends a lot doesn't mean they worship. Just because someone saves a lot doesn't mean they don't. The idol of money works in actually both ways. First of all, security. Some of us look to the money for security. It's the thing that tells us we're going to be okay. It's perhaps what drives us in our job to keep that job because it provides us a living and we need that. Is there anything wrong with the fact that your job provides you a living? No. When it becomes the God that provides security for us, then it's a problem because now we are bowing down to it. Now we are sacrificing to it. Now we are saying, you are the thing that I need most. You are the thing that tells me I'm going to be okay. And so as you think about your money and your job and you think, well, is this job going to provide me enough money for today, for my needs? Is it going to provide me enough money for the future? Am I going to be okay in the future? Have I got enough saved? And that's what the job is for you, is security. And if that's the case, you begin to look to your job fundamentally to provide that. How do you know if that's what you look to your job for? Because on the surface, it's hard to tell. Because we all, if we get paid for our work, we're all happy to get paid for it. We're glad we need it. If we're out of work and we're looking for it, we need it. It's a necessity of life. So how do we know whether something actually, this has become a God offering security for us? Regardless of whether you're working right now or you're looking for work, whether you make a lot of money or a little. It's this. What keeps you at your job? What's, maybe, maybe the job is actually causing you to sacrifice your health. It's causing you to sacrifice because you don't have enough time to exercise or work out or sleep properly because you're working too much at night. Maybe your job is it's causing you to sacrifice time with your family. It's causing you to sacrifice some of the relationships in your workplace because you're kind of frustrated. Why? All because you can't lose this thing. You know, we, at that song we sang, Without You I Fall Apart. Some of you maybe that are new to church or whatever, you might think that's a funny thing to say to God, but every one of us says it to something. Every one of us says, without you I fall apart. And if security is that thing, if we're constantly kind of scheming and planning to be fair, we have enough. We may be working. Maybe you're staying in a job that's killing you, but you can't leave it because if you leave it, what am I going to do about my finances? 
Maybe it's keeping you from taking a risk that you need to take. But if you take it, well, who's going to protect me in the future? Maybe you're not, you don't have enough money right now. You're working part-time, you want to work more. You don't have a job. You're looking, you're thinking like, well, I've decided to stay at home with my kids, but now I'm really torn because what about the future? And it's the thing that's keeping you up at night. It's the thing that's making you not sure whether you can stay together, whether you can, are going to fall apart or not. Because it's security for you. It's providing you that blanket. It's the thing that tells you you're going to be okay. The reason it's false is you don't know the future. Many people realized that in 2008 when the stock market began to kind of quiver a bit. And a bunch of stuff that had been in retirement for years, suddenly the bottom fell out of it. There is no guarantee for the future, no matter how much you've saved, no matter how good you think you are at financial planning, no matter how much you've tucked away, no matter how much job security you have. Because you don't know the future. That's why it's a false god. It can't actually give you what you're looking for to give. Money can also be significance. For some of us, it's not a security thing. Money just tells us we've arrived, how much we've made, what we're able to do with it, what we're able to buy with it. And you might say, well, no, I'm not an extravagant person. I don't buy the kind of cars, the kind of house, the kind of clothes or whatever that other people do. But for you, ultimately you feel significant because you know what money can do for you or what the things you're entitled to. And by and large, let's just be honest, we live in a culture that the more you make, the more significant you are, you're uh, deemed to be. It's not just, it's not just a, a bald fact of our culture. And we like the stories of people who went from insignificance to significance. And how do we measure significance? Riches. Success. Well, it's just the fact of our culture. And so we live in a culture that views money this way. And so for some of us, we're chasing that job that allows us to live a certain lifestyle to say, I've arrived. And maybe you've come out of a background where you didn't have it. You grew up in a home where you said, we didn't have nice things. And so now I feel good because I have nice things. That's self-worth. I feel good because I get paid a certain amount of money. Or maybe you don't, and because you don't, you don't feel significant. And we have a culture that does not value jobs actually by their significance at all. The more money you get paid, the more money if you're able to make money. It's not actually a distinction of significance at all, or the kind or the quality of work. So we live in a culture that is completely, the amount of remuneration according to a job is completely out of whack. And yet we bought into it thinking, well, I don't make enough money, so perhaps we're chasing that. And ultimately, what we feel gives us our significance is what other people think of us or how good we feel about ourselves or what we've been able to achieve or the dream that we're still chasing to get there. So whether you're a spender or a saver, whether you have a lot or a little, money can be that thing that promises significance and self-worth. But it's false because you can't, it can't because how much is enough? When will we feel we've finally arrived? There's a story I may have told it to you before, but came up in our men's fraternity course last year about a guy who was the CEO in his 60s, and he had made truckloads of money, more than uh, he had ever expected to. And he could have retired 10 years earlier, but he was still working and working, working in a driven sense. And the guy who was a pastor in his, uh, he was in his church said to him, hey, well, you, could, you could have quit by now. Why don't you stop? And he said, well, he said, I grew up single mom, those three Three, three of us boys and my mom, and we lived in this trailer, and I hated it because we didn't have enough money to afford anything. He said, when I walked out the door at 17, I said, I'm going to get as far away from this place as I can. And he said, I'm still going. What was driving him? The practical sense of having enough to pay for the needs? No, something in him that said, I am not significant until I know I am away from that level of insignificance. It's a false god because it's a moving target. And so whether you ever get it or you feel like you can't get it, it can keep us going. 
And our workplaces, in a sense, can drive us that way and offer that, whether we feel like we're getting paid properly or not, whether we're saver or spender, we look like it or not. The second, perhaps more at a deeper level, is this issue of identity. We live in a culture where doing has replaced being. And by that I mean, generally speaking, all of us believe that who we are is what we do. That because we do it for so many hours, that essentially that is our identity. I'm a whatever. And I said this to you before, but when you meet someone new or you go to a cocktail party or whatever, we don't ask each other, who are you? We say, what do you do? And some of us love that question. We're very excited to say what we do. Others of us are just hoping it never comes up. Especially if we're out of work. Because if we're out of work, what do we say? I don't know. I was reading a story about a TV personality who at the height of her career checked herself into a mental institution because she said it was just blowing up inside her. And she couldn't take it anymore. And she said, my first week there, I sat down with a psychologist and he said to me, who are you? She said, oh, I'm the host of such and such a show, and I'm blah, blah, blah. And he said, no, who are you? And she said, well, I'm a TV personality, and that, that, that. And she, he said, no, who are you? And she said, I don't know. He said, ah, now we're getting somewhere. And regardless of whether you hosted a TV show and had all of that reality, I was talking to a friend of mine who's recently retired. She's 60, she's quit her job, she's now going back to school, wants to kind of explore some other things. And she said, the strangest thing was when I began to kind of mix with people I didn't know very well. And she said, I was chatting with a younger person at a cocktail party, and they said to me, shook my hand, they said, oh, what do you do? And she said, I'm retired. And she said, before I could even get the rest of it out, she said they were already looking over my shoulder, kind of for who else they were going to talk to. Why? Because what are you going to talk about now? Because who are you? You don't work anymore. Maybe some of you that are approaching that stage of life are looking and thinking, well, who am I? Because I don't have anything specifically that I'm doing anymore. Maybe those of us that chose to quit work or work less so we can spend more time with family or spend more time with aging relatives or whatever, we feel like our very selves are going away. We don't like the question of what we do, and every day we struggle with a sense of purpose. Why? Because fundamentally we are looking to that thing to provide us not just with a job and something to do and enjoyable work and a balance, but it's identity. It's who we are. And it too can promise security. I'm going to be okay in the future because I'm this, or I've achieved this, or I've got to this level in my job, it's who I am now. And there's always work for such and such, depending on what I do. I'll never be out. I'm okay. That sense of security or self-worth, I've arrived. Or I've, I've, I've achieved that goal that I was going to be. I've become a such and such. Or we listen to our parents or our grandparents. Instead of deriving our self-worth from the fact that we are God's children, that we are dearly loved, that we have been given a sense of identity and significance because God has made us in his image, Instead of deriving our self-worth from the fact that God gave up his own son for our lives, that Jesus came and called us brothers and sisters and gave up his life for us, in spite of the fact that we have been given a, 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 a community to be in as the church where each of us were called the body, where each part is essential and integrated and unique and necessary, instead of our deriving our self-worth from that, we've said, no, I am what I do. And it is a false God. Without you, I fall apart. Maybe some of us are going through that right now. In your workplace, maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you're feeling like you're not being recognized for who you are. Maybe you're striking out. Maybe you've taken on a new assignment, but now you feel like you've, you've kind of gone beyond your abilities. 
Maybe you're looking for work and you can't find it. And inside, you're not just sort of needing to get this job. You're coming apart. Because without you, job, who am I? I fall apart. This is a reality that is a potential for every one of us because we do this work thing more than we do anything else for somehow that subtle shift to go from being a good thing to being God for us, to being the thing that tells us you're okay, you're going to survive. How do we know whether that shift has happened? Sometimes the, the seat or the, the heart of our deepest emotions whether we can sleep at night, whether we're frustrated, whether when something goes wrong at work, whether it begins to consume us and eat away at the very core of who we are. Beyond just kind of necessary responsibility for work. Maybe we're working late into the night. Or often, like someone told me once, what do you want people to know about yourselves as soon as you meet them? For those of us that it's our career, it may be because that's our sense of significance. That's who we are. We want people to ask us. And for others of us that are going through something where we feel like, I don't want anyone to know what I do. Why? Because it reveals that I don't think I'm as important as I really am. These things reveal the fact that this is a potential for us, that somehow something has shifted. And instead of God giving us our sense of significance and self-worth, it's our money or it's our security. The worst part about this is, is making these things our false gods doesn't make them evil, but it makes, them, makes us empty. In the scriptures, it actually tells us that it actually diminishes our work, right? Because if you work for a paycheck, if you work for money, then if you're not getting paid what you think you should be, what's going to happen to your motivation? You're not going to work as well. If you work for a paycheck and you're not there really to, if you need security more than you need anything else, you'll be quick to cut off or stomp on somebody else if it's, if it's eat or get eaten, if it's kill or be killed. You're not going to deflect praise. You're going to keep the praise. Why? Because that keeps your job security. You're not going to accept blame because that could threaten your job security. So you're going to deflect blame and accept praise instead of what a servant does, which is to deflect praise and accept blame. You're going to stomp on invariably or eventually the people you work with if it's for security. Why? Because it's kill or be killed. Because you need this to survive. It actually diminishes who we are, whether you're the boss or you're working for a boss, whether you're working on a team or you're working on your own. If we take something that, and that wasn't meant to be God and make it God, it actually begins to ruin who we are as people. My belief is that, you know, if we, if we actually think that without you I fall apart, if that's true, and, it, and if as I put that to you whether, you, whether that's true of God for you right now, it's true of something. Hey, there we are. Thanks, Hal. Whether that's true for you right now of God or something else, every one of us has something in our lives and says, without you, I fall apart. My belief is that as more and more we begin to make that thing God, as we realize that he is the one that holds us together, that he's the one that provides for us, that no amount of money saved in the future can tell you you're going to be okay because God is your provider. We begin to be at peace. The anxiety and fear begin to go away, not because I'll be finally saved enough and the markets are going to be okay and the markets are going to be stable. Who can say that? It's because we know that God is trustworthy, that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And as Tony said, he never sleeps. 
And he puts us to bed at night and says, I will take care of your problems. Just go to sleep. Just trust me. Don't put your trust in the paycheck. Don't put your trust in job security or the markets or how much you've saved or how you haven't. Those are faulty things to put your weight on. As we begin to trust God, what happens? We are more peaceful people. A person at peace is a pleasure to work with. You're not going into work anxious and needing to make this work or needing to make this project work or having to find work because otherwise you're going to fall apart. No, because God, without you, I fall apart. My job is just an opportunity to experience joy that you've given me. And when God begins to be our identity and realize it's because he loves us, it's because of what he's done for us, it's because of this family, this body. It's why we gather one in seven and stop working and remember we are not just what we do. We are part of a body that is connected together. And maybe for some of us you find frustration in your work, but the church gives you a little bit of an opportunity to do something that you don't get paid for. Maybe no one wants to hear you sing at work, but you get to sing here. Maybe there's things you get to do with your hands that you're sitting in a desk all day or vice versa here. That the body of Christ reminds us, I'm not just what I do. I'm not just an employee number. I'm not just title on my door. But that I'm here as a part of a body that my significance comes from what God has done for me, what he's given to me, not from my workplace, whether I'm killing it or getting killed. When that begins to happen, we change as people in the work that we enter into. Before I close on that, is there, I uh, wanted to give you a chance to send any questions in. We got a couple. All right. Thanks. So the first two are actually sounded fairly related, which is this sort of line between what's a good thing and an ultimate thing. So sort of on the one hand, how do we balance um, our desire to do well and excel in work with making it an idol? And sort of on the other hand, how do we take the right steps in terms of, I think, being faithful with, to God versus sort of taking our trust away. So sort of is, for example, getting life insurance something where sort of we're stepping away and putting our trust in something else? Or sort of how do we walk that balance? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, it's always a good question to ask, to, to response. I, the one thing I will say is, I think, is I have begun to understand both the narrative of Scripture and the narrative of my own life, is this will never go away. The battle with false gods is a lifelong journey. And so there's no place that you can go, ah, I'm, I'm good now. Uh, as someone used the analogy of driving a car, you don't fix the wheel in one place. There is a tension, there are things that pull at us, and we're always holding it together. And on the surface, it's actually hard to determine. So what has helped me in sort of going, okay, where is my heart ultimately? Is it, is it rooted? Is it, are there other things that are holding me together or is it God? Is it without those things or without him that I fall apart? I just have to keep asking myself these questions and have people in my life. The thing that has helped me is the, the, clue, the, the, the strong emotions that I have. What makes me so delighted? What, what do I kind of think about over and over and over again? Someone gives you a compliment, maybe you get a compliment and review in a workplace, it's good to feel good about that, but do you kind of think about that? You kind of chew on that a lot? You sort of read that note over and over again? Do you want to tell as many people as you can? Like, how often, how, what are you dwelling on in the positives? Or how often do you go and check your um, useless retirement calculators? On the, like, what do you do with your downtime? Where does your mind begin to go when you're just sitting around? That's what you're daydreaming about. Those questions have helped me start to go, wow, I'm thinking a lot about kind of my financial future. And, and either I'm feeling good about it or I'm feeling a bit stressed about it. 
You meet with your financial advisor, you look at your bank account or whatever, and you might feel positive or frustrated, but what continues to play in your heart? Are you able to leave it there? Or something kind of continue to dwell on? Even when you're sitting in this space and you're thinking, what are you praying about all the time? There's certain things your mind's always going to, always concerned at. Where does my thought patterns kind of go when I'm at rest? And where are the clue to my deepest moment? What makes me most angry, most frustrated, or most delighted? Not just kind of normal frustration or whatever, but what is devastating me? What's happening in the workplace that chews me up? Or I get an email from that person or that person at my work that I can't even read because I'm just scared of how I'm going to feel after. Or that person's power. Why? What's going on? Maybe this, so sometimes the, 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 where our deepest emotions are, are a clue to whether something has become unhinged and we have now begun to trust in God. In terms of the practical things about life insurance and how do you know, should you save for retirement? How much should you save for retirement? I think prayer, talking to other people who are Christians, these have become good for me because I realize I'm not wise enough in my own mind to know. And am I doing something out of fear or out of faith? Like, is it wisdom, or am I afraid? And when I talk to someone, I realize, oh, they have way more life insurance. So they have life insurance. I don't have, and now I'm in a panic. Oh, no. Well, they don't actually know more than you do about when they're going to die, or if they're going to die, or you. But suddenly, now that conversation, you've gone into a panic. What's having our emotions? And ultimately, can I put my head to sleep at night and say, God, you're the one. If I have enough for this, agree. Some of you say, I don't have enough money for life insurance. So what are you going to do? You've got to trust God. You're going to go into debt to do that because you're afraid, because you might die. We're all going to die. And ultimately, God is the one that determines that. And so sometimes, the more money you have, the more problems you have with it because now you have to make all these decisions. If you have less, I don't have enough money for life insurance, so I'm trusting God. The more money we have, the harder it is to trust because we can actually do things with our money that we think can actually help us. And so... Conversations with other people. Hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And not just people that you know are going to tell you or have a vested interest, but someone who will tell you the truth about yourself. And don't just tell them what you're thinking about doing. Tell them, tell them why you're thinking about doing it. Think of this. Why? Well, because of this. Well, why? Because of that. Try to get to the bottom and ask why and be honest with them. And then they may say, hey, I'll pray about it with you that you'll have the freedom to do whatever you need to do. And if you do it, you have a peace. And if you don't do it, you have a peace. The fear and anxiety is a clue that something's not right, whether we decide to do something or not. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, that's great. Um, the next question I have is just related to sort of the brokenness that we see in, in the world and in work. Um, can you talk about working in an industry where maybe you don't agree with some of the fundamental assumptions, like you're working in sort of an advertising or industries where greed or consumption or let's say lust, sort of these things are, are good? I mean, we see in the Bible, Daniel and Joseph probably didn't agree with everything that uh, they were doing, but how do you wrestle that out or work on that in, in your workplace if that's your reality? Yeah, it's good. I think um, uh, one thing is to realize that we, you know, and like Malcolm saying, some of the stories, like someone like Babylon and, and Israel, when they were uh, displaced from their home and they weren't in a nation that put God first. They weren't surrounded by people that loved God and obeyed God and they had a different set of values and a different set of goals. In fact, Daniel was brought into Babylon, completely brainwashed, taught an entirely new religion. And he, it said he became one of the best sorcerers. Like he was among the sorcerers and magicians. So I don't know what he was doing. But we know he was praying every day. 
And he was in this place where he was being brainwashed by all the values that were completely counter to his faith in God. And somehow he was faithful to God in that place. So I think the first thing is, don't feel like you have to run. If you're doing something illegal, yes, you need to stop. <laughs> if you're doing something unethical, you need to stop. And not just for your own sake, but for the people around you. And I know sometimes those are, again, if you're not sure, I'm not sure, ask somebody who's not in your company. And just someone called me this week saying, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. Do you think this is okay? And not, not that I know, but I'm like, hey, sample of one, so let's talk through it. And their heart was, we want to do what's right, so we need to talk to some people about this. I think if you choose, I can say, okay, some of us may feel like, in, like 1 Corinthians 7 I referenced last week, where Paul was talking to slaves who had become Christians, and they were like, oh, I should quit my job. And I was like, well, if you can get your freedom, like if the job is killing you, and if you feel like, I just cannot, I don't feel like I am really doing my best or what I want to do, this isn't coming from my heart, then it might be a time to seek another employment and to begin to look. And if you can get your freedom, get it. I don't think you have to run away. I, when I look at, um, I have a friend who's, who's an actor, we talk about this a lot, but in any kind of, like, whether it's banking, whether it's advertising, whether it's places and spaces in that shape culture, in our culture, we need people of faith in there. And you may not have final authority over what gets printed or what gets published or what gets seen out, but what is the process and are you challenging the people in your workplace to think differently and to ask, hey, do we need to do it like that in order to get success? That was one of the keys with Daniel. He said, I know you guys think success happens this way, but can I try it a different way and see if we get the same results? And if I get better results, then we'll do it my way instead of your way. If you have some influence to say, can we try this another way? Rather than thinking, well, I don't morally agree with this, so I kind of have to wave this card to say, okay, this is under protest. You know, other times to say, I like that, but I feel like I'm uncomfortable with that aspect. Can we try something else? And here's the question. If your peace and trust is truly in God, and you're not afraid of getting fired, or someone looking at you like, this, this is strange, then you'll take a risk. And say, okay, I'll try. I'll put myself out there and say, but I don't, I, generally speaking, I think we have to stop this idea of thinking that certain industries are bad and evil and others are good. I know certain kinds of work you may think, this is really valuable work, like you're in the service industry or you're a police officer or a teacher or whatever, but, you know, I make advertisements or I make widgets or I make this kind of food and people can or cannot buy it. The quality of your work is still number one in terms of what you do, and taking a risk to say, okay, am I willing to try to shape this from the inside, even if the outside kind of looks the same? What are the people in the process? And maybe I'm going to ask questions that other people in my workplace are going to start to think about what they're doing. Got time for one more? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So sort of one person really likes this idea of shifting sort of questions from what do you do to sort of who are you and who are you. Can you think of some examples of what you could answer to this who are you question? So I think the first two weeks as we talked about what does it mean to be a worker, you know, what does it mean to work, I think who, who am I? One of them is I'm a servant. Like God has sent me into the place where I work to serve other people. In, in the job that I do, but in who they are and where they're at. So fundamentally, who am I? I'm someone who is meant to create and cultivate, and I'm a servant. And we're going to unpack this a little bit more in terms of how does that actually shape our identity. But truthfully, I mean, and, and you, you may or may not like this answer, but for me, I know that the more that I have realized that I'm a child of God and that I'm loved by God, 
what I do is just a task that he's given me to do to express that love and to experience his love and joy. But it doesn't, it's not the title over my head. It's not the thing that I go to sleep at. It's not the thing even that says on my resume. It's that, that I'm a child of God, that I'm loved by God, that I'm forgiven, that I'm a sinner saved by grace. As we begin to actually internalize who God says we are and who he is, it begins to change the way we do our work. Because the issue isn't so much, okay, identity, who am I, but how I'm doing my work that actually begins to change. Because my identity is my job. I'm going to do it in a way that is about me. If my identity is that God has freed me and served me and that I'm a dearly loved child of God, well, then I'm now doing my work in a way to serve other people. The only way I know for that shift to actually begin to take place slowly is when we really begin to know who we are in God and who he has made us to be. And part of our job as we gather together every week and in our home groups is to be reminded of that. I'm not fun. I've stopped what I'm doing and I'm here being in the presence of God. And the more I internalize that, the more it's actually going to change the way that I do my work. I don't know if that's all sufficient. You have time in your home groups this week to unpack that. If there's stuff that didn't get addressed, feel free. If you have already Malcolm's text, you can text in more. But feel free to email me or whatever as we go through this. I'm going to invite the worship team up um, to close. But here's what I wanted to finish with. I wanted to give you something to do in your heart. And that is to protest the idol factory. Okay? And here's what I think of this statement. And what I mean is, where's the idol factory? It's not where you work. It's in your heart. It's this heart that's prone to make other things God. It's to say, God is God, not my paycheck and not my profile. And you could put, if you want to rap to that or something, like, God is God, not my paycheck, not my profile. Uh-uh, uh-uh. It still works for me, but whatever. You know. We have this, you know, some, Tim Keller talks about preaching the gospel to ourselves. This is what I'm talking about. The protest in my heart that I'm going to wage war in my heart and say, no, I'm not going to work or look for work or look to my paycheck or whatever because of what it gives me and how it defines me. God is God. It is what he has said about me. It is what he has spoken over me. It is the task he has given me that he is ultimately my boss. He is my friend, my savior, my rescuer, not my paycheck, not my profile. Why does God want to reveal the idols in your heart? Because he's a sinner and he's mad at you. And he needs you to worship him. I've said this so many times, we just need to remind him. God doesn't need us to worship him. He remains eternally glorious and perfect, if nobody said it. God wants to reveal the idols in your heart, because when you and I put our weight on things that can't hold us, we are the ones who fall apart. And so God wants us to be able to say, without you, I fall apart, no matter what's happening in my job. No matter what's happening with my paycheck, no matter what's happening in security, no matter what's happening in the company around me, no matter what's happening in the stock market, without you, I fall apart. You're the one that holds me together, and everything else is your gift to me. So as we sing in response to that, do that this morning, even as you're singing the words and as you're praying, saying, God, you're my God, not my paycheck, not my profile. Let's, let's stage a protest in our hearts this morning. To let him be God to us. Would you stand? I just want to bless you with more of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity given to us. Jesus said, I'm going to send the Spirit, and he's going to remind you of everything I have said. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded. I need like a voice in my ear all the time. So I just want to bless you with more of the Holy Spirit in your life to speak those words that God is God. Not what you make. Not your title, not whether you think your job is significant or not, whether you're looking or waiting or wanting or trying to get out or trying to get in. 
that the peace in your heart would come from the whisper of the Holy Spirit that says, God is God. If that defines who you are, would you receive that?